This is a Rooster Teeth production. In 1845, the British sent out an expedition to find a way through the Northwest Passage. After two years of no contact, the expedition was deemed a failure. To this very day, most of the crew has still not been found and no one truly knows what happened. Let's discuss the puzzling case of Franklin's lost expedition. This is Red Web. Welcome back, Task Force, to another Mystery Monday. I'm Trevor Collins, and with me, bringing his gut check, coming in blind, Alfredo Diaz. hey Uh, ooh, okay. All right. A little mystery. Uh, you. the open sea. What? Hmm? You're going to like this one. I'm just huh? going to go ahead and crack this one wide open. Okay. You turned me onto a show a while ago, AMC's The Terror. Oh, yeah. That's what this is based on, or that's what that was. This is what that was based on. <laughs> oh, are you serious? Yeah. That was a really cool show. Like the atmosphere of that show mm. was so eerie and uh, there's so much mystery and intrigue. Oh, yeah. You're going to pick up nuggets throughout this kind oh. of episode of what that show is polling on, because there are some things we kind of piece together in the investigations and expeditions trying to find this thing, these these ships that were lost. But the show does a really good job at trying to draw between the things that we don't know. It tries to build out a full story. And I think it's really well done. But obviously, it's a little bit more fiction relying on the fact. But Right, because things get, things get pretty wild and crazy on and like in that season. And the thing I liked about the show, too, was that it was... Season one was contained. It was literally this story from start to finish. And mm-hmm. then season two carried on a different tale, um, which season two I didn't like as much. I don't think it had the same directors. Um, but man, uh, okay. I'm super excited because the, the, the show was just so eerie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I can imagine living through this expedition. It would be just as eerie. So we're going to talk about some of the facts that we know about the case, the preparations of the trip, some of the ancient investigations, ancient, I guess, I guess, historical investigations, and then the modern attempts to search for these ships and the crew and what happened. Uh, But yeah, you're going to pick up on how the show leaned on some of the facts and developed some of the fiction. And I think this is going to be a good time. So let's dive into it. So in 1845, as I mentioned, the British were searching for a way through the Northwest Passage, essentially an area north of Canada in the Arctic Ocean that would connect the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. It would just make trading a lot more easy, essentially being more efficient. So that way they wouldn't have to go south around the Cape in Africa or South America. They could try to finagle their way up through the Northwest. Just make trading better, right? Right. Yeah. Trying to uh, maximize. You gotta maximize your efficiency, you know, that goes straight to the bottom line. It's all like about the save profits. Money. It's like mm-hmm. save money, time, you know what I mean? Start bringing up, yeah, those profits. Also, give us a couple of mysteries, turns out. So, we have Sir John Franklin, for which this expedition is named after. He was the one chosen to lead this expedition, and at the time he was 59 years old, and he had a whopping 45 years of experience with the British Royal Navy. This guy's been on the seas since he was 14. Right. Very experienced. Yeah. So definitely the guy you want at the top or at the helm there. He was also a lieutenant governor at one point of what is now known as Tasmania in the uh, Australia area. 
Another interesting note is that Franklin previously had experience in this area, leading two other expeditions into the Canadian Arctic Ocean. But in one of those expeditions, he actually lost 11 out of his 20 crew. So he was familiar with this area, familiar with the treacherous winters that you would go through. And he was also he also knew that this was not a safe place to go to, that loss is very much an expectation potentially by going to a place as harsh in the winter as this. I just can't imagine, too, because like, yeah, the conditions are harsh, but also like back then medicine and, and like technology wasn't as advanced. Right. And then you pile on top of that the terrain. Mm hmm. Like, say you go through and you navigate it. Who's to say, like, the land's not shifting around in any way, shape or form. Right. Right. Like, exactly. I mean, we'll get to it, but th it, there's no guarantee that some of these waterways that they were navigating would thaw every summer. And so, yeah. like you're saying, like these paths can ebb and flow and change. Some could be right. blocked off. So, I mean, even if they made it through, let's just pretend this wasn't a mystery and they made it through successfully. That doesn't mean that the path they took would be consistent. Yep. But he had learned from this failure, right? The Copper Mine Expedition is what it was called. It mostly struggled due to low provisions, and they realized that the journey was growing too long, that they were out there too long, whether they were frozen into the water or not, because that's something that happens in this area. Ships get frozen in place, sometimes for years. And so because of that, they learned a lot about this kind of environment. So that way, when they went back out, hopefully this would be the right person. Hopefully they will have learned on how to to make a more successful trip, right? Right, because you want to get out there with your best foot forward because this is the kind of trip where most likely it will fail, right? It's not one of those mm -hmm. things where like, oh, you know, things are going to be all right. It's it's No, it's one of those things where um, you're probably going to lose some people. Things are probably going to go sideways. So you want to make sure like if you do spend the time and money and uh, if you take anything of value, uh, you know, obviously not counting lives, human lives, then you want to make sure that you have the best shot possible. Absolutely. I think the safest thing about the North is that there's not a lot of owls up there, so they should be fine. Nothing's watching them. Nothing, no nefarious birds mm -hmm. scooping around the skies, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I just, mm -hmm. the, you know, the owls. Yeah. I mean, the task forces keep, keep me on to, up to date on all the owl goings ons and, uh, they get me. I need to hire someone that has like a trained owl to mess with you or something. Oh, in some oh, way, shape, or form. Oh my god! I know. I knew it all along. <laughs> I start waking up and I'm like, ooh, ooh, I'm like, oh, no, we're moving. <laughs> uh, just but, drops a letter. You know too much. <laughs> you know too much. No post on Sundays. Uh, so coming back to this this trip though, this expedition, the second in command was Francis Crozier. Uh, he was chosen as the commander of the HMS Terror, for which the show was named. So you have the HMS Terror, and then we have James Fitzgerald, who commanded the other ship, the HMS Erebus. So both the Erebus and the Terror uh, had history, and they were actually bomb vessels that were then converted for these expeditions, right? They were both ships mm -hmm. that sailed in the Antarctic expedition, and the Terror was actually a veteran ship of the War of 1812. So they have a colorful resume behind them. And I think they were chosen because of the thick hulls that they had being bomb vessels, I think. Uh, this is my my guess. Just for the sake of going through so much frozen ice and being able to plow through it or being able to stand up to being frozen in place. What a, like, what a sick ship name. The Terror. Like, oh, my God. It's really cool, but... 
I don't know if I want to be on that. It's dope as hell. You you <laughs> gotta be a bunch of badasses on that shit. There's no right. way you could be a pushover on the yeah. terror. Enemy forces hear the terror coming and they start rattling in their bones. They're, they're like, uh, I don't know. It's it's got a name like that for a reason. And and it's seen combat, it seems like. Or oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, they took both the ships. They were retrofitted with the most advanced technology for that time period. So they did everything that they could, including really stocking up these ships to really make this potentially three-year-long journey as easy as possible, as doable as possible. Wait, it was three years long? Oh, yeah. They were they were at least equipped for three years. So that way, even if it didn't take that long, they would right. be good. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't. No way you're getting me on a damn boat for three years. Are you kidding me? No way. Yeah. But then also, I mean, it doesn't make sense if they were to get frozen and stuck, they'd potentially have enough food to be thawed out mm -hmm. the following like summer. Absolutely. I mean, they had they had tons of food. I mean, they had 8,000 cans of food. And this was a time, you have to remember, where canning was still very much a luxury. It was not super common, but because they were canned, they would last longer. In fact, if they rationed them properly, or if a situation arose that they needed to ration, they could actually make this food last for up to five years. So, I mean, think of it. You're on a boat in the middle of the Canadian Arctic, potentially frozen, so everything that you see is just white ice and snow for five years, potentially. That's just, that's mind-boggling. I'm not brave enough for that. That's just I, too I long. I truly am not. <laughs> that's just too long. I mean, you, sure, you're good on food, very important, but like, I mean, I guess you can grab ice, boil it, but still, it's like, there's so much more than just food, right? Um, mm -hmm. Just the conditions are, themselves are just, dummy it's oh, just yeah. ridiculously like too much it's just way too much and, and then on top of that you also have to think of the different like health conditions you could possibly run into like what if you Absolutely. run out of antibiotics all that kind of stuff. like it's yeah i don't know oh yeah you get the drama the infighting things like mm -hmm. that yep. let's just say i thank god we did these expeditions before the invention of the television because as soon as that thing came out and our our attention spans plummeted this kind of expedition would be impossible with millennials. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no one would want to leave their house. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, they accounted for something like that. Uh, I didn't even realize this having watched the show, um, right? The show tries to do as much as possible to stay factual, true to history. But the, one of the ships actually had a library with over a thousand books. So that, I mean, that's a lot of weight, but that's with the intent of keeping the crewmates entertained and sane, which is incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, that's that's got to be your form of entertainment, right? You're not like mm -hmm. watching TV or on your phone. Right. Or you just stare at the horizon and wait. Yeah. <laughs> the icy cold. Yeah. And this was another thing that they didn't have in the show, uh, which I'm going to keep referring to now, is uh, they had they had a cat, they had a dog, and they even had a monkey aboard the ship. So that's interesting. Cat, dog, monkey. Mm -hmm. I think I remember the monkey on the show. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, we named the monkey Jack. <laughs> Monkey's named Jack. I know that. But anyway, coming back to the expedition a little bit. So we have the Erebus and the Terror, and they set sail from Greenheith, England on May 19th, 1845. And then on July of 1845, they made a stop at Disco Bay on the west coast of Greenland to gather some fresh food because they're like, man, this is going to be our last taste of that fresh non-canned goodness. Right, everything's going to be coming out of a can. Uh-huh. And I don't know if this was a bad omen or anything, but they let off five men at that time. 
They made it to Greenland very much at the beginning of their adventure here. They let off five men who had become sick. So when you really think about it, after one, two months, you got five men sick. You got Jesus. three years potentially ahead of you. Starts to get me a little nervous personally. But then at Baffin Bay, they were seen passing ships as they waited to cross to Lancaster Sound, just northwest of Disco Bay. This would be the last time that they were seen by Europeans and the crew's final letters were sent from this location. So essentially, this is their last, the last we ever heard of them as people. Right. Well, more or less. It's the last we've heard of all of them, I should say. Um, alive, I'm guessing, or something? Yeah, pretty much. Oh. Yeah. There, There's a couple nuggets we'll get into with the searches of some lost letters and things like that. But at the end of the day, the deeper mystery here is what went down? What happened with the men of these expeditions? So let's flash forward a little bit because as far as the rest of the world is concerned, they are in the middle of their expedition and they're not going to be heard from for a while just because of the nature of all of it. There's just not a lot of people up there. So after two years of no contact, it was believed that Captain Franklin and his crew of 129 men had gone missing. It was uncertain exactly what had happened to Franklin's crew, but it has been pieced together by searches done over the last 150 years, and that's what we're about to dive into. I think one of the worst things about this trip is that it's so long. You gotta sit there and go like, I mean, we could be lost in the first month and people are gonna be like, yeah, they... They're good, oh you know, they won't, we won't see them for two years, so there's no reason to worry about it. Because right. like, it's such a long expedition. Mm-hmm. It's not like I, I took a trip to the grocery store and I didn't come back that night, right? And then immediately, hours later, you might be searching or whatnot. Like, there's probably two years, two and a half before they go, okay, hold on. Like, maybe we should send someone out there. Maybe there is something going down. Absolutely. And as always, I have to compliment you on the gut check because that is exactly what went down with Lady Jane Franklin, Captain Franklin's wife. She was pushing for a search mission in the Northern Passage because the Royal Navy was just not concerned at first. And that's where you have that push-pull kind of thing because on one hand, yes, we all acknowledge that they're going to kind of not be heard from as they do this trip. But on the other hand, She's like, okay, it's, it's actually been a pretty healthy amount of time. This is my husband. Let's start looking a little bit, right? Right. And so they, you know, the Royal Navy didn't really expect to hear from them until 1848. So that's three full years, Jesus. you know? Yeah. And so they sat there, they said, you know what? They got ample provisions. You know, this is all as expected, at least within the realms of the timeline. Uh, and, it, and we know that they're unable to send letters because there's, literally zero Europeans going on around there. So there's no infrastructure for that. It is worth mentioning that there is an indigenous peoples, the Inuit people in the area, but that doesn't mean that they'll be able to send letters off. No, not at all. Like it still cuts off communication. Mm -hmm. So, you know, after these kind of conflictual conversations, eventually after two years of no contact searches did begin. They sent three search parties beginning in 1848. They actually posted a reward as well. The reward was 20,000 pounds, British pounds, uh, which accounting for inflation over the many years would be about 2 million pounds as of 2021. Obviously this was with the hopes of encouraging people to search because this was a very dangerous area. No, no truly no sane person who doesn't have much experience is gonna go waltzing into the Arctic to go find a ship, you know? 
Yeah, I, I don't understand how. I mean, even if you put that reward out there, like, what are you, uh, what are you expecting? Like, just the most desperate of desperate people to try and make something happen, right? It's, yeah. You would hope that they would have to be like signed off on, so that way you can at least vet all the people that are just like, "Oh yeah, I'll do it. I got a dinging out back," you know. Like, no, you you are definitely gonna disappear if you go, pal. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. There's no way. I mean, look at the 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 amount of resources on that ship and the experience, and they didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, at least as far as we're aware at this time. So. One of the expeditions that kicked off in 1848 uh, was an overland expedition led by Sir John Richardson and John Ray. This is a person that you're going to, we'll call back to him a few times throughout the episode, but they began traveling along the routes planned by Franklin. Ray actually stopped and interviewed various Inuit people that told him that they had seen 40 white men sometime in the spring of 1850. So you might notice that there's a bit of a timeline shift this is how long their search was. They started in 1848, and by the time they're interviewing Inuit people, they're saying, we saw some white men as of the spring of 1850. So they're out there for a few years searching. Oh my God. Like, oh, what yeah. do you, I mean, at that point, you're just looking for the ship, right? And that way you can investigate it. They're looking, they're literally looking for everything. I wouldn't expect anything to come of like finding them and them being like, oh, we don't have the ration anymore. You found us. Right, right. Oh, thank God. We didn't expect right. a, a, a John and a John to st just walk, <laughs> just waltz across the tundra and help us out. Like you, you just got to think at that point people are moving on. Oh, probably. I mean, at this point, it's more of a let's figure out what happened so we can have peace of mind and, and maybe Definitely. know if this is worth doing again in the future. But What's interesting, too, is not only did they, the Inuit people see those 40 white men, they also seemed to be, and this is from the Inuit people, they, they were saying that the men seemed to be dying of starvation. They were seen, very importantly, on the north shore of King William Island, near the mouth of Back River. Another interesting note is that the Inuit people had reported seeing acts of cannibalism by the crew. The Inuit people also validated, basically verified their reports by providing objects that had belonged to the crew, such as forks, spoons, and some buttons. So this is very eerie to me. You're out in the middle of nowhere, you're desperately looking for this expedition, and you find some local individuals, and yeah. they're able to procure some evidence. And with some hindsight here in play, they are just like titillizingly close to, to uncovering something. So, like, in the show, I believe, like, the food was contaminated or it was poisoned or something like that. Like, the yes. rust was getting into the, the food, so it was making the men sick. Mm-hmm. That is definitely part of this. Mm-hmm. Oh, sweet. So, the show got that correct. Yeah, because it seemed like they were getting sick from eating the food that it was supposed to, like, you know, nourish them. Yeah. And then it was a mix of, like, uh, okay, where, well, like, well, damn, like... <laughs> Like we're gonna, we're gotta eat something. But you have to sick. exactly whether it makes you sicker or do you stop eating exactly. and starve? Like what do you do? And I think in like, and I haven't, seen, I saw this show when it came out like years ago. But I think like one of the men, like, brought back meat or something like that from either uh, from another human. I don't know if he killed him or the oh, person died. Right. Remember? And then he was like, oh yeah, I caught something out there, and they were all just eating it. 
Yeah. Okay. So on one hand, you're talking about one of the theories. And so we'll, we'll definitely dive more into the can stuff here soon. But on the right. other hand, I'm coming off of like what I saw on the show. Yeah. 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 I love it. So on the other hand, the story that you're talking about with the potential killing and there was an identity swap situation happening in the show. That's right. There was. Yeah. And that's, that surrounds the person who had the meat and, and, uh, there's a lot of drama that happens in the show and you go, okay, that's where we started to really uh, stretch the limits of what was factually happening. But guess what? There was def That is based on some evidence found in one of these expeditions to find the team. That identity theft situation is, is basically based on something. And we're going to get to that here in a minute. It's just it kind of as we talk more about this, you'll see just how much of that show is based on what we know about this uh the show i, I just want to say I, this is not sponsored but the show did a great job at building off of what we know yeah it was it was it was fantastic it was a really eerie show mm -hmm. i was to everyone i recommended it to they're like oh yeah that was a fun watch. <laughs> yeah but yeah so we have the inuit people talking about what they've seen and uh, that's very important. And we'll come back to some of these destinations, especially Ray's interviews. But in 1850, we have other search crews that found evidence of a camp on Beachy Island. Now, again, I want to pause for just a second and recognize there's going to there's going to be a lot of geography happening. And uh, this is in the far north of Canada and even Canada, even my uh, lovely Canadians up north. Most of them live within a few miles of the border to the United States. So. It is very remote, and I recognize not a lot of people might know these islands. So, as always, you can check out our YouTube page or our Twitter page, both with the handle RedWebPod, where we will provide some maps and a path of the expedition, so you can follow along if you're so inclined. Otherwise, I'll do my best to kind of verbally direct you where we're at. So they found some evidence of camp on Beachy Island in Lancaster Sound. They also found the graves of four crew members. So now we're starting to make some progress. We're starting to see, okay, unfortunately, a few crew members met their early end. And this is kind of indicating a less optimistic yeah, picture, right? Like, they ran into some trouble. I mean, it's so crazy that this was like to be, it's kind of like to be expected in a, in a way. In yeah. terms of like how harsh this mission was truly. Very much so, for sure. And we'll and and I mean we'll continue to unveil some of the the harshities. I, I if I if that's a word, uh, <laughs> some of the harshness uh, of the, of the conditions that they sailed through. And really, as we kind of start to know more from some of these search parties, what might have actually gone down as best as we can. But you're you're totally right. And I think the Royal Navy at a certain point has to make a pragmatic decision based on all factors because otherwise, one, there's the waste of further life. There's the waste of further life, there's the waste of finances, and there's the waste of time. So essentially by March 31st of 1854, despite the demand for many more searches, despite the people of, of Europe saying, we, we need to know what's going on, we need to know what's happened, the Royal Navy determined the entire crew was deceased. Simply due to the odds, given the length of time, not hearing from them, yep. and not finding anything optimistic, right? There, there's nothing here so far saying, nope, they're still kicking it. They're still around. I mean, based on the stories, the graves, it's not looking great. It's not. And at what point do you go and like you said, like risk other people? Exactly. Know. You just kind of have to call it quits. Mm-hmm. But despite that, it doesn't stop other expeditions from popping up and focusing on certain areas, such as the expedition that was led by Francis Leopold McClintock. 
This happened in 1857, and they focused more on the Back River area, based on the information provided by Ray earlier. The intent was to locate the remains of the Franklin Expedition because it seems like we've already started to pick up some breadcrumbs on that path. Mm -hmm. So in his search, McClintock ended up buying all of the Franklin Expedition relics that the Inuit people had. Again, these are the people that Ray had interviewed, so he knew where they were roughly, ge geographically speaking. Right. So he, he procured those just to see what's up. They also then told him about a ship that had wrecked west of King William's Island and that some of the crew went to a large river. So this is great information, almost forensic information to say, okay, we witnessed the crash or a, a, a sinkage over there, and then the crew went down this river, and so it seems he's kind of on the right path. So McClintock then splits up his crew between the northern and southern ends of the island. Then in May of 1859, the search crew that headed south actually found a cairn, essentially a pile of rocks stacked in a way. Right, as a grave. Exactly. And uh, and this was in the show, containing messages from the crew of Franklin's expedition. Now, this place, this these notes, rather, were called the Victory Point Notes. So the Franklin crew had written that both the Erebus and Terror wintered at Beachy Island from 1845 to 1846. They ascended the Wellington Channel and returned west of Cornwallis Island. It's also worth mentioning that this is a maze of waterways and islands up here, as you can probably tell. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's like, I don't even know how you navigate that. I mean, mapping it out, like, that just mm -hmm. seems, it's, that's a profession and it all on its own. Oh, yeah. Especially without satellite, you know, mm -hmm. GPS tracking, all that. But suffice it to say, when they looked at this, these notes, they read them. And besides general information, the, the crew that had written them wrote, quote, all well. So, okay, we have our first positive sign uh, as far as everything else is concerned. But mm -hmm. then in the margins of the note, you have Captain Crozier, Franklin's second in command, wrote that the crew of 105 had abandoned the Erebus and the Terror on April 22nd, 1848. Get this, because they had been stuck in the ice since September of 1846, almost two years that ship, those ships stuck in the ice. So they decided to abandon. Wow. Mm -hmm. I just like, there's so many times like when I play games or I'm just like, you know what? I've already committed like an FPS, for example, or I go, you uh -huh, know what? Uh -huh. I'm already committed to this angle. Like I'm not leaving. And that's but... what I feel like they did there where they were just like, we're committed yeah. to like getting this thing thought out by like the next summer so we're not leaving like, they're like all right boys the summer's upon us 1847 rolls by summer comes to a close all right boys <laughs> yeah, yeah dang i thought next we were gonna summer say. will be better like i just right right well oh my god just can you imagine like that driving mentally insane oh yeah what i thought you were gonna say which would also be accurate is in like an fps game or whatever you're holding an angle and the minute the second you start going, all right, I'll move. You take your eye off Always. the angle, bopped. And so uh, they took their eye off the angle. They abandoned the ship. But it is worth mentioning, in this note, he wrote that Sir John Franklin, the man that led the expedition, passed away on June 11th of 1847, as well as nine other officers and 15 men. So again, kind of 
laying out what we already expected, that the men were passing away. And again, remember, we kind of know whether, you know, everybody knows their end at the end of the day, but it's what happened is what is still the biggest right. mystery. And that's what these uh, expeditions in searching for the information, that's what they're trying to uncover. How they disappeared, how they met their end, outside of being frozen into the water, when they left, what went down, right? Dude, that is a lot of people that got lost, too. Like, oh my gosh, yes. I mean, this is, that's a ton. That, that, that's a good chunk of the crew. Absolutely. Yeah. And it turns out, in searching this area, a second cairn was found. Again, another pile of stones. And this was just a few miles southwest of that same kind of area, and it had the same information as the main message back in the victory point note that we just discussed. Another thing that was found that's very interesting, and this is where we kind of have that kind of confusion on identity that the show really had fun kind of building drama out of. Mm -hmm. On the southern coast of the island, there was a skeleton still wearing clothes that was discovered with a strange pocketbook. Inside were the sailor's certificate and basically to validate the, the identity of a person. And it was the certificate for Officer Henry Pegler. But since the clothes belonged to a ship's steward, the body was believed to actually be that of Thomas Armitage. So Armitage was essentially a shipmate of Pegler's in the gun room. And it's uncertain as to why Pegler's notebook was found on what they believed to be Armitage's body. And so this is, I think, where the show had fun with identity right. theft and someone yeah. being on the ship that shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, but this is very intriguing. It, it, is it that Armitage wore someone else's clothing to stay warm? Where was his original clothing? Because it wasn't there. Right. Well, that that's where my, my mind would be. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah. Or because the bigger question is, why would he have, why, you know, somebody's notebook? Um, it just seems very strange. But Pegler's notebook essentially got nicknamed for the alliteration Pegler's Papers, was damaged. So the writing was hard to make out. It was hard to pull off any information from it, but it appears to contain notes about the expedition as well as certain words written backwards for some reason. I'm going to read them as they were. Where? Backwards. Backwards, yeah. This, this is such an interesting mystery. Like, the show was very intriguing, but, I mean, I, I see why. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they were working with some good dark source material. Most likely, I mean, I right now my mind isn't going towards where the show is, where there was you know spiritual things happening and whatnot. But like mm -hmm. more so that the conditions got him. But right, right, right. The yeti, the yeti. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like polar bear type. <laughs> honestly, thing. Honestly, I mean that's what the show had, but like. Yeah, I mean, and, and we'll, we'll get into all that, but he, some of the words that they were able to make out that were backwards read as follows, met, knit, and et. And obviously reading those backwards, I'll read them in the same order. That would be the words them, think, and the. So good luck reading between those lines. I, I don't know. I just remember the show had a lot of fun. This is an episode about the show now. Uh, because, you know, we are the uh, number one movie podcast about mysteries it, it at the end of the day. Very you know? true. <laughs> so <laughs> this was the the device they used to to kind of explain. Like, the, I think it might have been the captain that had the notebook, but just writing down what was going on day to day. And uh, so that way for posterity. Right. And that's mm -hmm. what I think this is based on or they based it on the Pegler papers here. But at, at the end of the day. Let's just like wrap it all up on these more historic investigations. There were 39 search missions that were sent for Franklin's expedition. 
One of them, the McClure expedition, actually led to the discovery of the Northwest Passage. So in a kind of dark and twisted way, the lost Franklin expedition did open up the path to the discovery of the Northwest Passage, but not in the way that they had hoped, right? Yeah, and and, and more of a cost than they thought would Very heavy cost. That they'd pay. Right. But based on the information in the Victory Point note, after the Franklin Expedition's winter at Beachy Island, the crew became trapped in ice north of King William Island for two winters and eventually decided to abandon their ships and travel south. The Royal Navy had a general idea of what happened to the crew, but there were still so many questions left over, and that's where I want to flash forward to much more modern history, because with the advent of technology mm-hmm. and uh, a lot more safety measures being able to be taken, we've learned a lot. But even in modern times, the curiosity over what happened to this expedition continues, right? I mean, as we keep talking about this show, that is the byproduct of such curiosities. And it only, yeah. I think that show came out just a few years ago. But the first kind of modern investigation into all of this was in 1981, when Professor Owen Beattie of the University of Alberta and his team, all named the, this is a long name, 1845 to 48 Franklin Expedition Forensic Anthropology Project, hereby, I'm going to name it FEFAP, they discovered remains from the lost expedition on the west coast of King William Island. So again, you hear King William Island a lot, basically to say the experience that the Inuit people had was basically telling them that that was the hot spot to be looking for. And it turns out, even in the 1980s, we're finding more evidence there for good reason. So now that they found more bones and stuff, they start testing them. There's that tangible evidence that you love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they found that the bones were actually lacking of vitamin C, suggesting that they may have succumbed to scurvy. They also found within these bones that there were 226 parts per million of lead in these samples. This is 10 times more than the Inuit bones that were found in the same area. So that kind of wipes out any sort of toxicity from the from the region from the from the ground or whatever right basically isolating that yes lead was a problem and we kind of knew that there is a bit of a twist to that information in that will expose more in the theories section but uh you know we kind of talked about that you and i about the canned goods and uh, mm-hmm. that, that's pretty well known that old cans uh for for canned food were made with lead often prior to knowing that lead was actually toxic but yeah, we'll, we'll dive into that. But essentially, when they looked at these bones, they also started to realize that there were markings on the bones, suggesting that there had been some sort of sawing activity, cutting, basically implying and validating the idea of cannibalism, right? I mean, if the, the cans had lead and that was poisoning the men, uh, you really, really, really hungry and someone's dead. Ah, God, right? Oh, I don't think I could ever like come back and be the same from that if I had, oh, if God, I said no. I'd eaten human. Yeah. Like, I, I no, no. Nah. I just no. keep picturing the scene where they had like poisoned a body or something, and mm-hmm. so he's like, "Don't eat the body," but they're like, "You better eat the body, or we're gonna eat you." And so he eats like the tough heel skin. Oh right. Because he's like the the poison will make it way its way there last, you know. I think it was the doctor. The doctor, like, yeah, it was. self-inoculated himself with poison, knowing he was on the outs. Oh, my goodness. You're 100% correct. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, if you have to eat me, eat my heels. 
Yeah. I don't know. Very eerie. I, I just like, I think you, you are on the right path uh, to try to like exemplify my feelings because I like to put myself in, in the situation that the mystery is about. Right. And, and I'm just thinking mm-hmm. like, not only if you got lost within a month, you just know, regardless, you are cut off from the world for years. Not only that, but on top of it, you're out there struggling for food. People are falling ill. You don't know what to do because the food hurts you, but not having the food hurts you also. And so you just feel so trapped and that will to survive keeps you going, but there's just not much to hold on to. It's a very desperate situation that, um, wow. I just like, I can't even, I can't even come close to imagining this, you know? It's just so unfortunate that like they had years years they were smart enough to plan of like just in case here's years worth of food and you said earlier if they rationed it out five years five years worth of food and none of it none of it was was edible like damn dude that sucks oh yeah oh i would feel so helpless i would just feel like i just got the short end of it you know what i mean like you plant it out. You're like, just in case, we'll be good for years. And say they did get stuck, the food was good, and they didn't succumb to like the conditions or illness. There were people, you know, going out there searching and actually reaching uh, the places that they had previously traveled. So they could have possibly have been saved. That's true. That's actually really, really true. If only like, maybe they they just planted down and waited but again like it's such a harsh environment it it's truly in most of these spots at least especially in the dead of winter stone and water and ice that's it it's wildly deserted up there but yeah i mean so professor Beatty, just kind of to recap found some bones sampled these bones learned a lot about it and actually returned in 1984 for further research he also exhumed the well-preserved bodies buried at Beachy Island. Remember, a long, long time ago, there were four graves found. And so he decided to exhume those to see if there was any more insight he could glean into what went down. But now we're really coming up into recent history. September 7th of 2014, the Victoria Strait Expedition, led by Parks Canada, the National Park Service for Canada, discovered the wreck, finally, of the HMS Erebus. It was just west of the O'Reilly Island and south of King William Island. And then, on September 12th of 2016, the Arctic Research Foundation found the wreckage of the HMS Terror, coincidentally, in Terror Bay which is uh, just south of King William Island. So again, it almost, I, I don't, I, I guess I feel very conflicted with this information because on one hand, I feel there's resolve in finding the wreckage and uh, in this area and, and getting a little closer to knowing maybe what happened and where the ship's final destination was. But on the other hand, I just know that King William Island keeps being talked about as far back as the mid 1800s. And it just seems that, I don't know. It almost seems like they could have been found or could have been saved. And I don't know how to feel about that, you know? Right. I mean, maybe it was just because technology didn't uh, enable it. Right. That's true. It's true. I mean, I'm I'm sure in the 90s or the 80s, they wanted to go out there. Maybe funding wasn't right at that point. And maybe the, you know, people were looking and we just didn't find them. Um, I just, I just can't imagine to to know about this ship and to read about it and, and then to come across it. Could you imagine just finding a ship like that and then knowing that, oh man, oh, man. I, 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 I'll be honest, 
if you and I were, I don't know, that was our job to like explore and map in another year 2020. We came across a ship and we didn't know about it. And the ship just said the terror. I'd be like, no, I'm not getting on that ship. Right. No, I'm not no, getting on that pass. ship. Like, <laughs> like this, this thing looks like it's been out here for, um, you know, centuries. Like, nah, I'm right. good. I'm, I'm not going to get on the terror. <laughs> right. No, no way. Especially since it disappeared and reappeared. Also, I mean, coincidentally in Terror Bay, that's not helpful. Well, hello again, Task Force. It is that time of the episode that I get to talk directly to you, have this little bit of a one-on-one chat, as it were. Well, you know those cryptid pins that I have been teasing for ever so long, and you all have been shouting at me saying, hey, just release the dang things. Well, thankfully, we finally have a date. So mark your calendars, February 15th of this year, 2021. We have the cryptid pin set coming your way. We also have this really dope hoodie. It is uh, very similar to the hoodies that we sold before. So if you're still interested in that, they flew off the shelves. It is a a darker, like a crimson red with, I think it's like a gray, light gray or off white embroidered task force logo on the chest with a small red web embroidered hit down on the bottom left sleeve. It looks really cool. I'm looking forward to adding it to my task force collection, but I'm also incredibly biased, but the cryptid pin set will come with four pins. I believe we have the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, the Mothman, and the Jersey Devil. So if you like those episodes and you want to represent, I know a lot of you out there are pin collectors. Uh, thank you so much for continuing to buy our pins. It's It's been a, a treat. And the more uh, enjoyment you show with those, the more they fly off the shelves, the more I'm inclined to try to continue doing more limited runs and try to make them into uh, our own little red web collectibles, you know? But with that said, I want to talk about some of today's fantastic sponsors. Today's episode of Red Web is sponsored by Babbel. It's that time of the year for setting new goals. Top of my list is to continue learning a new language. That's right. I, Trevor Collins, uh, said continue learning a new language. That's because I have, uh, and I don't mean to brag, the speaking ability of a three-year-old in French. That's right. I am technically bilingual. Anyway, I'm doing this with Babbel, and Babbel gives you bite-sized language lessons that you can use in the real world. It's fast, fun, and kind of addictive. They make it sort of like a game. So I've been looking at their app, and the fact that they use these bite-sized lessons really make it fun and enjoyable. It's not the same as the classroom experience where you're just constantly looking at flashcards and memorizing things. So I really enjoy the fact that you can do it all on an app because who goes anywhere without some sort of app-capable device, right? Like your phone or what have you. Other language learning apps use AI for lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language learning experts. Babbel lets you choose from 14 different languages, including the usuals, you know, like Spanish or French, and even ones that are a little bit more on the fringe, at least for the American education system, like Russian, Turkish, or Indonesian. Plus, their speech recognition tech helps you improve your actual pronunciation and your accent, so that way you can try to speak as close as possible, as authentically as possible, which I honestly really enjoy. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three whole months for free. That's six months just for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code REDWEB. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com, code REDWEB, Babbel, language for life. This episode of REDWEB is also sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
Are you looking for another podcast that dives into the details behind conspiracy theories, cults, or scams, or perhaps secret worlds like the mafia or North Korea, or just flat out money laundering? There's a lot of nefarious topics out there, and you can get all of that and more with The Jordan Harbinger Show. It covers a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with guests that offers an inside look at worlds most of us don't get to see. Check out his episode on combating cult mind control or his episode with Javier Pena and Steve Murphy on taking down Pablo Escobar. The show also covers technology stories like deepfakes, telepathy, and preventing a superbug epidemic. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or simply search The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And with that said, let's dive right back into the mystery. It, it almost makes me wonder, because like, again, I'm going to jump the gun a little bit. A lot of the productive searches happened because of the continued involvement of the Inuit people. There had been stories passed down. There was a lot of firsthand sightings of people. And I would have to say, without the Inuit people of this area kind of passing these stories down. I honestly don't know if we would have found these ships. I think it is because of some of these stories that these ships were able to be found because some of the stories talked about a ship that sank in this area. And uh, I guess it just hadn't been known about or hadn't been discussed or whatever. But that is what led to at least one of these two discoveries. But so were they both found above the ice? That's a good question. I have I have another question, too, for Christian. Were they both above the ice or were they both fully or partially sank? And then the other thing I want to ask is it might be called Terror Bay, just pure coincidence. But I would be curious to know if whoever named this bay, if if they maybe knew about this ship in there, but but didn't know the history of the ship. And they saw, like you said, Fredo, it says terror on the side. Let's just name it after that. From a very quick Google, it looks like. Terror Bay was named in 1910, and yes, the expedition did factor into the naming of the bay. Okay, so because this ship disappeared in the general vicinity, they they were like, okay, well, this is an homage to the to the Franklin expedition. Let's call this bay Terror Bay. Mm-hmm. But they didn't even know that they named the bay that the terror was in. Oh, that's wild. That is crazy. It's interesting. I'm continuing to read and it says that, but then it also says that, yes, the terror was found here, but then it also says that it's a coincidence. So the name was not a fact. Let, let, let me let me read this from the beginning. I think Hang what on. it means is like is is that it was just like here here's to the expedition. Let's name it after that, whether it's here or not. I think it's just a coincidence that it also ended up there, if that makes sense. Yeah, according to this, it says that the bay has the same name as the ship. Although this is coincidental. Oh, so it's not even named after it. Apparently not, but it's not saying anything as to why it was named this. It just says it was named by the Geographical Names Board of Canada in 1910. Weird. Another mystery. It's another damn mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as Christian looks up the other question with regards to whether the ships were above or kind of at water level or below... I have one more interesting fact before we get to the theories. So this comes up into last year, 2021, as of recording this episode. So it was until May 
of 2021 that none of the bodies discovered in the previous searches had been positively identified. I mean, we had the person who had the clothes of one person and then the notebook right, of another. Note, yeah. But that's all just kind of guesswork. And I do want to say, in short, that there were many bodies found over the years. It isn't really worth diving into all of them because we, we outlined most of them. It's just there's varying significance and there's varying information. So I just didn't want to muddy the waters. But um, Lakehead University's Paleo DNA Lab actually was able to identify one of the bodies found. They were able to procure DNA of several of these bodies. And one of them had DNA of a crew member, uh, John Gregory, that matched up with someone today, to this day. The great, great, great grandson, Jonathan Gregory. I don't know if they're coincidentally named or, or what have you, but there was a match. So that basically validated the fact that one of these bodies found was in fact that of John Gregory. And uh, the last contact that that the family, the Gregories had with John Gregory was in July of 1845, when again, the ship stopped in Disco Bay. So I find that to be so deeply fascinating that DNA is just wild. Yeah, to be able to trace down lineages like that and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Um, it'd be very interesting to see how what we do with that uh, from a technical standpoint, uh, like fifty years from now. Oh God, I, I uh, I've got conspiracies that come to mind that just get me all fearful. <laughs> More likely terrifying than anything else, but it, yeah, you know, sure. at some point they're just gonna print out another Trevor, and I might just be disappeared, but no one would know. <laughs> that is true. Ugh, I don't like that. Um, <laughs> But all right, but that wraps up kind of the modern searches, the investigation up into this day with regards to the HMS Terror and Erebus and the Franklin Expedition at large. But Christian, were you able to find any information with regards to the ships and their sinkage? I was. So it looks like when the Erebus was found, that was found lying at the bottom of the eastern portion of Queen Maud Gulf, which is a gulf... Um, kind of in that that the general area but it looks like that when the terror was found that may have been frozen in the ice it says the ship was discovered in 2016 like we said but uh the the researchers or the people who discovered it were led to that location based on somebody who had seen a mast protruding from the ice in terror bay back in 2010 oh so this thing was popping up like a little stick Dude, out of the water. So awesome. Up to 2010, yeah. It seems like it was still frozen in the ice. As right. for whether it was frozen in the ice in 2016, not really sure. Right. That's that's the part that's hard to know because of the the freeze thaw, freeze thaw that happens almost unpredictably in this area. Interesting. I mean, like the little excitement to have, to, you know, to just hear word of mouth from, um, you know, from a local that you know, there's. A, there's a mass sticking out of the ice. I'd be like, oh my goodness, we got to go. Like, let's go. Oh, yeah. I just got to oh. take a look. Like, why would this person lie to me about it? And it makes no sense at all. Like, it must be there. That's wild. I mean, I can't even imagine, like, rolling up on the mass sticking out of the water and being like, oh my God, after 150 plus years, we've found it. That's huge. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, that's, that's kind of like I said, it brings us up to the modern day as far as everything we could possibly know about these ships and again it just leaves the biggest question as to what happened to the crew uh some of it feels like natural some of it feels like we, we kind of have a gut instinct for what might happen but there are some pretty interesting thoughts as to really the ultimate destination for these for these crewmates i have a question yeah what's up 
So I'm going to toss this to both Christian and you. We are talking about like DNA and then you brought up like copying. Yeah. What if oh you went to bed, closed your eyes, woke up, right? Uh-huh. And uh, how would you go to sleep and wake up? Same. Like you, you essentially you lay down in a room, you wake up, there's a copy of yourself. You don't know if you're the copy or if you're the original. Would you do it? What? Would do I do what? it? Yeah, yeah. What do you mean? Do there doesn't what? seem to be an upside here. <laughs> yeah, two of you could be productive. Oh, oh. Does it matter so, to you? Does it matter to you if like if you're the original or not? I think uh, there was the, no way to tell. Like you went to sleep, woke up. There's another copy of you. That is a big conditional. It would all be based on how it'd be exact copy of everything about you, uh, your memory bank, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Up until that very moment. I would I would have to say like, you know, it'd have to be a convincing robot or we'd have to know a lot about the brain for me to even slightly entertain that possibility. Because <laughs> if I had if I had my memories, I would be dead confident that it's me. But with that condition, um, no, nah, I don't need to mess with another me. I don't need that to happen. <laughs> I don't need that in my life. <laughs> Christian, you're going like, yeah, you use double, double the me, double the work gets done. Uh, that's freaky, man. It's very freaky. I don't even know how it handled that. I have no yeah. idea. Like, was it, wasn't there an old Disney Channel movie where someone like they, they were doing a science experiment and they stirred some sort of like clone goop with their hair comb, but their hair was on it. So they cloned themselves oh, that, and they were like, you're right. Yeah. yeah. And they were like, you go to school for me. I'll stay home and play video games. Yes. But, but then they started living a better life than them and had more friends. Yes, they, and they were smarter. Did. That's what I'm afraid of. Other me going, <laughs> I'm going to take over the other me from 2000. Oh my God. I just said the words other me. That's oh perfect. My God. <laughs> the other me. I don't think I could do it. No, that's, that's too much. Like not, not knowing if I was the original or not, that'd mess with me. I'd know. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. I, I think mentally, like, even even if, like, me and another me, we totally were completely in sync, I don't think I could live knowing whether or not, like, I was the original. Hmm. Ugh, I don't like that. It gives me the heebie-jeebies, dude. <laughs> Would it be worse if, if, you, if that happened and then you were told right then and there that you were the original or the clone. Helpful. But then I have the fear that the clone's going to wake up someday and I won't. Yeah. Yeah. Because then, like, if you're the... Uh, here's the thing. If you're the clone, then maybe you want to be the original, right? Like, that's the only exactly. way you could be the original is if there's only one. Exactly. And then if you're the original... I feel like eventually there'd be some kind of like power dynamic going on there where if you don't agree, because naturally you will not agree upon things, you go, well, I'm the original. So I don't know. I don't, I just feel like there'd be, there'd be a fight. Too dangerous. It's too dangerous. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a killer. So if the clone is exactly me, it would be quite the struggle to get over that hurdle. But there would be some maybe some sort of animosity happening that I just like, I don't need that negative dramas in my life. But imagine you woke up, you had a clone in the room with you, and you both had your memories wiped. And oh. you're just sat there in a room going, what? Who are we? <laughs> Who are we? You might not know that they're a clone because you wouldn't have memories. Anyway, let's jump into the theories. 
for uh, for the potential destinations. And before we get into them, I'll ask you what your thoughts are, like what you think the most likely outcome to to was. My brain hurts now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it was. I think it was uh, food poisoning mm. or uh, lead poisoning to be exact. And uh, they either got caught by the conditions. Um, well, the conditions forced them to be stuck there. So it was just a triple whammy, right? Oh, like, yeah. You got stuck there because of the weather. Then from there you go, well, at least we have all this food to keep us tied over. Nope, the food is bad. And then it's just like at that point, well, now the clock is drastically ticking. Oh, yeah. It all falls apart. So we're just going to have to get out and walk and see what we can do here. I tend to agree with you. I think that those are very, those those are the most likely outcomes, but we're going to dive into those two different elements that you outlined there in a little bit more detail, plus another theory or two that I find very interesting. All right. So kind of, as you mentioned, we're going to start with the two more common theories as to what went down and they make they make a lot of sense right so the first one revolves around the environment the very harsh and frigid environment of the canadian arctic definitely definitely played a role in their disappearance i mean if nothing else they were literally stuck in the ice for way longer than any of the crew members had expected i'm, I'm talking years which is i still it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that but there they were yeah, it's like how do you how do you stay warm for that long? Like, oh I'm my sure god, had yeah, how do you have enough wood or coal or whatever you need they use during that time? A lot of cuddling. Yeah, a lot of like, all right, gentlemen, everyone get together. <laughs> but yeah, so regardless, in, in my humble opinion, and and as you kind of mentioned, like. Even if the weather didn't get them directly, it is purely the weather that froze them in place. It is purely the reason why they left the ship and went out in in search of, I, I don't know, help or leaving or just whatever. Um, and that's really what set off the chain of events that went down, whatever they were. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking if you're stuck in the ice for two years, that at some point you go, you know, maybe we could rely on the natives or something. like. Sure. You know what? That's a good point, too, actually, because if they had in the spring of 1850 seen some of the native peoples, what maybe there was, I, I don't want to assume what the relationships were, and maybe there was a tension or communication issues, but it would seem to me that, you know, maybe get some help, maybe maybe reach out, or I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll kind of dive into that, though. But it is worth mentioning that the route that Franklin chose, as I kind of hinted at earlier in this episode, it, it was a path that doesn't always melt in the summer. In fact, a lot of these waters, it is very common for the waters to stay frozen through the summer. And so that kind of might have aggravated the situation a little bit. And during their march south, during after they had abandoned the ship, they might have just simply succumbed to the cold, which is totally possible, especially when you consider the fact that none of this expedition was planned to be over land. And so they just were not properly outfitted with such a journey, right? I didn't even think about that. Yeah. For all the planning that they had, it was for them to be on the boat. Mm -hmm. not to actually get off of it and survive outside of it right didn't even cross my mind yeah and i mean i hate to dive into the show because i don't want to blur fact and fiction but i just think it's so cool to lean back on the show because it provides if nothing else a visual for the story we're talking about right now but i do remember the way the show addressed this and the reason because because the question in my mind is if you were so ready for five years of food 
thousands of books, or at least a thousand books, right? And you knew you were meant to be on the ship. It almost seems foolish to get off the ship. And was there some sort of argument that drove uh, them to leave the ship? Or was it that the second in command after taking over was like, nah, I'm changing this up. We're getting off the ship because otherwise we're never leaving. It's right. it's definitely a difficult, if not impossible decision to make, but it does kind of drum up some questions. Well, I'm, I'm sure like a lot of people were sitting there and they were just like, we, we got to try something. This is right. Nothing's happening. I'm losing my mind. We got it. We got to do something. And then also, it's just very natural for a new person to be in charge to want to make their own, to make decisions that would separate them from the previous ownership. That's a great point. Or leadership. It's true. It's very true. And I don't know the interpersonal dynamics of those two or the experience that we didn't really talk much about, the experience of the second in command. But, you know, there could have been friction there, decision making differences. But yeah, I guess it all boils down to me to like what is the main motivating factor to get off the ship if you know that that's what you were prepared for and and again kind of like that food poisoning issue that you were talking about where well maybe that's maybe these two ideas go hand in hand right they're saying well we have to get off the ship regardless of decision making because the only thing we have is poisonous food (laughs) which kind of leads me nicely into the next theory i want to talk about which is food poisoning so Sir Clements Markham, who was a geographer who assisted the search for Franklin's expedition, himself actually theorized that their canned food may have led to the disappearance of the entire crew. Due to timing constraints, turns out that the canned meat that the supplier had made did not have the proper quality control necessary when canning the food, which could have been what led to food poisoning. And the discovery by FEFAP that I mentioned earlier of the high amounts of lead and whatnot could have also been part of that, could have been part of their demise. Some of the bodies were found with canned food still on them. What is worth noting though, is that it was unopened. So what's interesting about that is, I think there's a lot more insight in that than at first glance would say, right? People are passing away with food on their person. Does that tell you that they knew the food was then contaminated? Is that why they starved and ultimately, you know, had these terrible scurvy conditions? Or was it that they became too weak in order to open the cans? It's just, it's a very interesting piece of information. Right. Well, we're going through the heads and the minds of the sailors Mm -hmm. in those moments, having that food there. Mm -hmm. How much did they know? Like, was it lead poisoning or improperly packed meat, like, or prepared meat? Right. Uh, Yeah. But it only gets a little bit more mysterious as you continue to dive into this theory, because other ideas have floated up that some of the illnesses that we're talking about could have also been caused by the pipes that were involved in the ship's water filtration system obviously incredibly important to a journey like this because their main source of water is very salinated a lot of salt so they need that Mm -hmm. filtration system and if that's imbibing them with more toxins uh (laughs) uh-oh right it just seems like everything that they the, the the human body needs to function just did not was the quality was just terrible for them yeah and the fact that they had canned meat on them when they were passing away and whatnot only makes the rumors of cannibalism all the more mysterious right because let's dive into that for a second because i'm pretty i'm pretty sure that the inuit sightings of cannibalism and some of the evidence that i'm pretty sure that this was happening this was 100 happening and so it calls into question 
again, there must have been 100% something wrong with the food, something wrong with the canned food, because if they're eating each right. other and eating the dead and not eating the canned food, it's, um, I mean, it could be an act of necessity, sure, but it could also be an act of like, this is maybe the cleanest source of food that we can get right now. In fact, in 2015, there was evidence of, quote, pot polishing, is what they called it, that they discovered. And this was caused by, you know, the scraping of bones on a pot while they are boiling. Those conditions provide the right environment to make certain markings on the inside of a pot. Oh, God. Yeah. That and the blade marks that I mentioned earlier that were yeah. found on bones by the FAP. you don't go straight to, I'm going to start eating people. Mm-hmm. Right? Unless... And- Especially with like a pile of food like that. Like the food had to be bad or at least it was a theory that the food was poisoning people. Yeah. And at that point it was split decisions left and right. Right. I think, yeah, I think it was basically a domino effect. Whatever the original, the the origin of madness, as it were, whether it was leaving the ship, whether, whether it was the water filtration system, which is interesting to me. I wasn't aware of this. Uh, or the food poisoning, whether it was lead or otherwise. it There is some origin of evil here. And I think it just spiraled out to create a lot of other problems that begot other problems and, and so on. Um, but beyond the food poisoning them and, and leading them to their death, um, it is also theorized that the lead poisoning and food poisoning may have had an effect on their decision making, which then made them create further problems. So whether it led them to cannibalism out of poor decision-making, whether it made them lead the ship out of poor decision-making, I don't know. That's that's the bigger mystery yet here, but it is interesting to consider the idea that the poisoning might have been behind a lot of the weird decision-making, right? I mean, hell, even if it wasn't the harsh conditions for that long, I, I would have broken down mentally. Oh my gosh. I, I truly, no truly can't imagine. I really, really can't. There's no way being stuck in the middle of the ice with no hope whatsoever maybe the food's poison maybe it's not like hell no i would not be able to like put up with that listen as a quarantine isolation expert as we all are (laughs) now after nearly two years of the stuff and this is such a light version of what we're talking about here i i get a semblance just a semblance of what went down you know with regards to feeling isolated um but I cannot and I would not want to truly fathom the reality there. But another interesting note, and, and we like to address the wrinkles in some of the theories. It is worth mentioning. In 2013, there was a study led by Jenny Christensen that found that the level of lead found in the crew members was consistent across their entire lives. Now, I'm not nearly buff enough to be a scientist, but no. <laughs> if you can test the if you could test the lead count of somebody's like over their life, maybe as their bones develop or something, it's uh, it stands to reason that not that they were acclimated to lead, but rather that nothing spiked the lead toxicity problem during this expedition. Basically, removing that potentially off the table as an idea as to what happened here, but it doesn't remove the food poisoning aspect of the. I mean, we'll never be able to test that part though. That's insane. Okay, I mean, yeah. Actually, can we? I if you find, if maybe you found a can that's still unopened, could you test it? I don't know. Geez, I don't even think about. I mean, no, it's so old at that point. But then again, like depending on what food and how to, right? 
right? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, they've had this, I don't know, measurement of traced amount of lead throughout the whole entire life. The science behind just knowing and figuring that stuff out, that's insane. But mm -hmm. like, something had to have been wrong with the food. You don't just not eat the food. Yeah, you know what I, I mean, like something had to have been wrong. There's no it, way oh. that everyone agreed uh -huh. to not eat the food if it was actually safe to eat. Oh, man. I don't know, man. The more I think about it, the more I rack my brain, the more curious and less answers I have, you know? And, and that's really the fundamental. Like, eventually, yes, the ships were found and some of the evidence has been found and whatnot. But really, the driving curiosity for me is still where these men ended up and what really happened on the ship. And and we truly might never know. But before I end up closing out with a thought like that, I do want to address another theory or two that I find to be deeply intriguing, actually. A, a very unique angle on how to come at this, this kind of expedition. So let me talk about Woodman's theory a little bit. So David C. Woodman is an expert on Franklin's lost expedition. He focused his research on the Inuit oral histories. One such testimony is actually what led to the discovery of the HMS Erebus. Woodman spoke to Inuit people who told him that one ship had wrecked in an area called Utjulik, where it was eventually found in 2014. And so before I continue, this just says to me, I, I really appreciate that this individual decided to continue to pursue the stories of the people that were there, because clearly early on we learned that there were sightings and those probably should have been pursued a little further, at least if they were open to it, right? If the people were open to it, but well, yeah, but it's interesting that, that this is his main source of information and research and that it seems that they knew where this ship had sank for at least some time or that the people had it in their histories, their oral histories. And so I appreciate that you know, he actually researched it in that way because that's how he found the Erebus. It's very cool to me. I think one of the things I really like about this mystery mm -hmm. is that there are modern updates. Oh, yeah. And it's beautiful and rare because of the fact that, like, you're taking a mystery and the stories from, like, tens of hundreds of years ago, and then you're adding, like, this modern twist to it in terms of, like, the way people think and technology and it's just like very very fascinating so like we can now look at like we can now apply the science of today to the findings that we've you know we've that we've discovered it's really intriguing you yeah get a little you get so much back then and then a slice them now oh yeah it's it's really cool i love bridging that gap because you know as i got older i started to appreciate history even more because i think we take it for granted it's just history is always in front of us all the time because that's what it, that's what everything is, is history. And there is a tendency to take it for granted and see it almost as if history is a movie, right? That George Washington and all these things, well, I don't know <laughs> what history, right? Whatever mm -hmm. is is um something that happened. But I don't know, before we have the perception of the world, before we see through our own eyes, we just kind of take it for granted. Oh, that. Yeah, sure. That existed, whatever. But when something like this, that's so deeply fascinating has its roots in history, but as you said, also extends all the way to at, at, as recent as 2021. It's so cool because it makes that history so much more tangible, yeah. so much more real. 
And that's such a rare phenomenon, even in the known history, that I just want to bask in it for a second, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, like like I said, you know, being able to apply today's, like, science to, to then is just, I don't know, you get to an update on mysteries, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which um, are few and far between, never guaranteed. Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, like, Jack the Ripper comes to mind, right? We, we did a whole mm -hmm. episode on that, and uh, there's not a whole lot of modern you know, updates because of just the nature of the, the crimes. But yeah, it's it's interesting. It draws into question what kind of forensic evidence we'll have in the in the far future. Will they be able to dig up bodies and, and if, as long as their brains aren't too rotted, be able to like kind of pull memories out of it and be able to see through the eyes of the deceased? Things like That's that. Crazy. Right? Oh, man. Anyway, ultimately, let's come back to Woodman. That's, I'm just... My mind is wandering now. But Woodman was told of multiple sightings of ships and men believed to be part of the Franklin expedition. So he continued to pursue these. So he theorized that perhaps some of the crew returned to the ships and managed to sail them further south, which is why the ships were found so far from their location indicated in the Victory Point note. But the wrinkle with that is... Well, as, as interesting and nice of a theory as that is, it is possible that even as a ghost ship, the water thawed, they moved, they refroze. Like, right. there's a lot of natural, not, his, you know. I, I would think that you'd find bodies on the ship or further south. Right, right. Or, or evidence that people came back mm -hmm. or, or just something. But, you know, either way, I think that this is a good angle to look at and... I would love to know more, like if if what Woodman's kind of experiences were with pursuing his research in the way that he did, if there was anything that connected it to this next theory that I want to talk about, if he had any evidence for it, because the next theory is is also in, in very interesting, and I think it was slightly hinted at in a way in the show, and it's a similar theory to that of the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Again, another full episode that we did, and another deeply fascinating mystery, but. It is theorized that the Franklin expedition eventually assimilated with the local peoples. They may have found someone or a group of people willing to help them during their trek south, and they ultimately might have figured out that they had no way of returning to England, and thus they settled down with a group of Inuit people and continued to live out the rest of their days. Those who remained alive at the time continued to live with them. It is worth mentioning, though, that it is there's no real... There's no standout evidence of that, but it is it is hard to say, you know, with with such a large group of crew to assimilate with with smaller groups of indigenous people. It's it's not likely to have that many people, um, but it's possible that a handful, give or take, of people might have assimilated, right? Um, but I find that to be a very optimistic theory here. Yeah, that's a very and I, uh, and I do lovely, like lovely theory. Um, mm-hmm. My my thing is, and I said this to myself while you were like throughout the episode when you mentioned it a couple times, but I was very impressed by the way that the the locals, indigenous people, were able to pass down these stories from right? generation to generation. Yeah. So for me, that kind of creates this large flaw in this theory in the sense of why wouldn't that be something that was talked about and passed exactly. on. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. why would they pass on? Then, like, we saw the people, we saw the ships, 
and not like the they became one of us and we have right you know they don't tell they, them about they, me they, like they why? joined us and you know they helped us uh you know became part of the family create families of their own or something like that like why would that be left out in any way shape or form right um, that's what i'm kind of wondering because if woodman's out there kind of exploring the oral histories you would you would wager that he would come up with this theory or be able to speak to it but mm -hmm. um but we don't have any information with regards to that which then kind of to me says that maybe this isn't as likely as it would be for the roanoke colony but um right but yeah, I mean, either way, I tend to I tend to agree with you. If if I had to pick an answer or a theory, I'd say definitely a combination of of the preparation and the environment just led to. I mean, we got to remember this is a harsh harsh condition to be in, and uh, they knew what they were getting into. I mean, there was a reason why this path hadn't been forged yet, and so you know when you when you cross the the frontier like this and you push the bounds of human knowledge and and ingenuity and all of that you you run some risks but that is franklin's lost expedition damn that was a fun one yeah that was a fun one and we said it before and i'll say it again because we had <laughs> thankfully it was a great show but we had the show to kind of just like give us this illustrated visual of right of the ship and the people and what they would would have worn and what below the decks would have looked like and um, mm -hmm. what it would look like in these harsh conditions and these blizzard storms and everyone being covered in snow and ice and yeah you kind of have like these these uh, creative visuals uh, to help supplement um, everything that you were just kind of throwing at me right I mean it just gives you a deeper appreciation I mean the idea that then they get stuck in the ice can they push through it no it's too thick can we carve it no you know these kind of things and um, man right. I, I just can't get over the the mental image of just what it would look like up there in the winter. I just, I really, I don't know what the opposite of claustrophobia is, but that's what it gives, you know, that's what it gives me. Right. But yeah, you know what? Honestly, I don't know if we will ever know what truly happened to the crew of the Lost Franklin Expedition, but Fredo, really appreciate you joining me. Uh, your gut instinct came in heavy and accurate on this particular episode. Loved it. Dude, it's, a, it's always a blast. I mean, this one was very straightforward, but at the end of the mm -hmm. day, it was like, it was just so mysterious as to like, oh, these ships went up there. They disappeared. They had so much food, um, tons of information. And then like these long spans and gaps of time between these situations happening. Then the fact that like people went up there to look, they find a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Then, you know cut to towards modern day we're finding this ship and that ship it was like it was simple yet beautiful all at once yeah and task force if you have thoughts that we haven't covered here in the show as always drop us a line you can leave us comments you can uh, leave us five star reviews now on spotify so if you like the show and you want to su suggest us to other people in the algorithm feel free leave us a review we'd, we'd be grateful for that um otherwise you can always hit us up on twitter at red web pod a thousand ways to get to know us and talk to us but i love when you guys come through with your own theories on what's going down and as always you know if there's any updates or anybody like really has like a just a banger theory that we forgot or missed or whatever we'll do like a mini episode or something to cover it but with that said fredo i'll see you right back here next monday for another mystery goodbye everyone yeah,